0: In my kind of short stint in pastoral ministry, about 13 years, and with counseling people, I've, I've found that most people are often ashamed of their past. They have regret, they long for a do-over, and are even haunted by decisions that they have made or decisions that others have made that impact them. They have words that are repeated in their own minds where relationships brought out by their own words, once formed, are now ruined. And what this seems to do is to cause them fear for the future, or in a constant state, a state of hopelessness about the future. And and maybe that is the case with you. Maybe that's the case with many of you. There may be situations at home or work, at school or even in the church, that you have simply botched, Or a valuable opportunity has passed you by. Maybe you've said those destructive words to other people. And those words seem to be irreversible or no hope of a resolution that would come at the end of it. And maybe one step further within within this is I've often seen that with those people who encounter those crippling thoughts and haunting realities is that that is often how they feel about their relationship with God. Maybe you attend church on a Sunday and join in by singing songs, but you simultaneously feel that you have blown it with the one you're singing about. Or you've read along with us, or you've heard a sermon only recognizing that that this is the one whom you have feelingly, eternally let down. You know you have so ill-treated or ignored or wronged God that you have no claim left on his attention. If you called out, he wouldn't listen. If you asked, he would turn away, let alone would he give give any affections towards you. On Sunday mornings, people like this very often try not to look as if they're so desperate as they really are. And what I've seen and what I've even encountered here is that when you are discouraged with your relationship with others, it is often because you are discouraged with with your relationship with the Lord. If and when that's the case. It's the scriptures that you should turn to. And in the book of Zechariah, the the longest minor prophet, as I do with every text that I preach, you start on Monday morning and Zechariah just kept going. The other minor prophets feel minor. This one is not. When you turn to books in the scriptures, and in particular the one this morning, you can actually seek a a joyful resolution toward the fear that you have, toward the, the doubt that holds on to you, or even the concern that that feels like an oppressive cloud, this gives you the resolution toward that. Zechariah is an obscure minor prophet. It is extremely difficult to read, even for its own genre of books that feel very difficult to read. Like Haggai, and around the same time as Haggai, the prophet Zechariah was urging God's people to get back to work by rebuilding the temple of the Lord where they could meet with him. They were delayed by their own laziness. They were delayed by their own sin and reflection in their own lives. And here was this trumpet sound of calling these people to come back to the water of which they once thirst. And through eight visions, two sermons, and two oracles, I think God uses Zechariah to tell God's people on a regular basis through all kinds of imagery, that he has not abandoned them, even despite their own sin. Now the structure and the layout of the book will be the structure and the layout of my sermon. It first comes to us in eight visions. That'll be point one. And then it comes to us in chapters seven through eight in two kind of longer sermons towards God's people. And then finally, two oracles that stretch over from chapter nine to chapter 14, where we hear that God shows us about his overwhelming rule his gracious word, and the the prophecy through this prophet of the one who will come to save the people who he's calling to return to himself. So first I want you to see in the first six chapters where God shows his grace to his people through these captivating images and visions, showing them his grace through a repeated reminder of his overwhelming rule on the entire world. Life for these Jewish people felt disjointed and uncertain, both brought on by the circumstances around them and by their own fault. Everything seemed to be shaking around them, especially in their relationship with God. You can imagine that the feeling of maybe not, not even wanting to come into this room because of you know that you will face the one, the Lord, whom you have ignored or sinned against on a regular basis. And after all, this is the God whom they were encountering who had dramatically exiled them to Babylon just years before. Would he give them a second chance, or would he smite them completely? Zechariah is saying, yes, he will, and listen to how he'll do it. So from the first opening words of the book, it sounds as if he would. You can scan over the first six verses, and there's a refrain repeated of repentance, sought by the Lord, not just called by the Lord, but sought by the Lord. Look at verse 3. Understand the imperative call of this whole book. It says, therefore, say to them, says Zechariah, say to them, thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Don't be like your fathers, to whom the four of their prophets cried out, but return. God has not abandoned them. That's the first thing he wants them to notice from this prophet as they endure the hardship of their own lives by their own fault and the fault around them. And friends, I think just before even moving on, I hope that you will consider this as a proper view of God. He's calling them to return to them like a like a trumpet from the front porch of a house calling your kid home who seems to be running away. Come back. A gracious view of God is what their first attention should be brought. He doesn't affirm their sin nor say that it's all okay in the same way that God never affirms your own sin or even says your sins are okay. But he does graciously say to them, return. Now the first six chapters of this book are a series of eight Distinct visions. You probably see those. Whatever kind of Bible you had, editors of those Bibles would have separated them in like paragraph form. And mine even has kind of labels for them off to the side. Where you kind of, as you're going through this, you're going, "Wait, what? What is this?" Oh, okay, it's a different vision. He's giving the eight visions for the Lord's people to understand, and they're difficult to think through and strange to actually envision. But the Lord gives Zechariah visions to make an overarching point. And on your own, I'd encourage you to look at these later on. I've, as I've been peering in all week, I've noticed that. This is a little bit different than how typical Old Testament structures occur. Typically, an Old Testament pattern of you understanding the point or an emphasis often comes at the end. You know, The resolution comes at the end of a story, or it comes at the end of the poem, or maybe you might even give a speech to someone who you want to propose to, and at the end you say, Will you marry me? But here in this structure, it seems like that the point and the emphasis of these visions are actually coming in the middle. Oftentimes in uh, Hebrew poetry or Hebrew formations, it's like a circling plane that finally comes down to a point where it hits the runway. For all of you Air Force people who want to know how you fly a plane, you you might circle around and hit the runway, just in case. I've been studying Wikipedia last night. Now on your own, I would encourage you to look at all these, and so we see often the story's climax of this structure. You you look at verses 1 through 6, chapters 1 through 6 as a whole, because there's eight corresponding visions, and you go, okay, if it's in the middle, then we look at the fourth and the fifth vision, seeing that as a climax. And I think that's the case, because these fourth and fifth visions are trying to exemplify and showcase the coming Messiah who would come to save his people. And that really gives us a grounding or handrails on what Zechariah is about altogether. Zechariah is a prophetic book calling people to hope for and wait for a coming Messiah, and he'll look like this, and he'll look like that. So that's the message of this. That's the emphasis of this. Fourth and fifth vision are about the Messiah. The fourth vision is about the Messiah and that it speaks about a high priest, Joshua, who is symbolically covered with the filth of the people and these people must be cleansed. The fifth vision is about God's everlasting presence being restored to his people through a temple rebuilt by Zerubbabel, a governor of the land who represents the renewed line of David. Remember that last week from that? From that prophetic work, and so at the end of the fifth vision, an angel promises promises to do uh, to two individuals an anointing to serve the Lord of all the earth. So the text says that the anointing one that God would send would both be a priest, you know, having the guilt of the people covered by himself, and also a king, one who would rule over all of the earth. You can see how, with New Testament eyes, New Testament lenses, how this seems to be so clear. The Messiah that he's talking about seems to be the one that was talk, the, talked about in the New Testament. The first and the last vision then, or that's the middle. So the first and the last vision, vision one through one and eight, both represent are represented by four horses that go throughout all of the earth and return to report peace. This is interesting. So you've got the Messiah in the middle, and then you've got this strange context of these horses going out all to the ends of the earth, and whenever the prophetic words are talking about like north, south, east, west, all the ends, the four corners. That means the earth in total. You can could, you could see that dramatically as like all of the earth. These horses go out, but they go out and they, they have two different visions of what's happening there. The first one has a vision of peace. But this peace that these horses capture and hold on to is that you can imagine the false sense of peace that people have by their own outworkings of their own lives. You know, locks on a door. A safe, conservative IRA. Or maybe a stable relationship with our friends and family. You know, a, a, not just a community, but a gated community. The safety that this would bring on, it, it seems to be a false sense of safety. But the, the other horses in Division 8, they go out to the ends of the earth, and what they see is safety that has been brought by the Messiah through him conquering his enemies. And they're coming back with a message of safety, saying that true safety is actually found by a Messiah who conquers everything and establishes his rule in his reign. So you can see how this is starting to form. You've got a Messiah in the middle who is, a, who is a priest and a king. These messages go out where a message of false safety is brought true safety, both by judgment and mercy. But then in verses 2 and 3, or verses, visions 2 and 3, in visions 6 and 7, these seem to be talking about the same thing. So you kind of all of a sudden, this balance beam is held upright. The second and the third visions show God winning victories over God's people, or, or winning victories over God's enemies, saving God's people, while protecting them of all those who lived among them. And the sixth and the seventh visions show God purging his own people of their sin. So altogether, then these four visions picture a defeat of all opposition to God's rule, both external and internal. When faced with opposition. So, in short, these eight visions are are aiming to do one thing, show one message, and they're presenting a picture of the whole world being brought to peace under the rule of God's anointing priest and king as he saves his people and cleanses his people. So, friends, the, the Bible will actually continue to explicitly show that this is exactly the work of the one who will come who is called Jesus. The Messiah, this prophetic picture, this apocalyptic picture, is the one who finds its fulfillment in the one that you and I, I pray, know as the very person of Jesus Christ. It was Jesus Christ who is shown to be the anointed one. He is called the great high priest. He is known as the king of the world whose kingdom would not be of this world, where his rule was the great hope of this world that the Lord held out in the long-suffering for these uncertain people through these eight visions given by Zechariah as both a confrontation and as a comfort for them to live a life in honoring of the Lord with a great hope that they will be cleansed from their sins through the suffering of one who will come. In short, these eight visions have a picture of the whole world at peace under the rule of God's anointed priest and king. So, note how powerfully God presents himself. This is the main point of him. He's presenting himself as one who provides grace by demonstrating he is the one who provides absolute rule and authority over everything. Remember the four horsemen, or the four horses. They go out to the ends of the earth, and they bring a message back of peace. In fact, the Bible says that God actually created us to acknowledge back to God and to each other this rule, which is why you and I actually have a conscience. We're not just robots. But we're walking around reflectors of God who are called to acknowledge His rule and reign over everything. His rule was so great and given so much hope, or so much hope that God actually promises to judge us for how we respond to this rule. And so when you and I die, or when the world comes to an end, our maker will become our judge, what this text says, where no opposition to him can prevent. This day of judgment. Now, one day the whole world, it says, will be ruled by God. And the God of Zechariah is presented to you as no small God. In chapter 6, verse 5, it says that he is the Lord over all the earth. The entire world is God's concern. And so, Christian, what this means for you is it means that you have absolute, true hope that the Lord himself who rules over everything and everyone, there is nothing outside of his stretch, is actually aiming to bring to completion your salvation. And he did it through the person of Christ, who was a priest and a king. The true God is a great God. The true God is a global God who does handle everything with just purity and absolute control. And that's why through these visions, the Lord does not often tell Zechariah to, to do this or do that. God doesn't tell Zechariah to do much of anything except words like to know and to see all that God is. To acknowledge and understand all that God is. God tells all mankind, in fact, in chapter 2, to be still before the Lord. Stop aiming to do stuff that you think will save you. Look at the one who will. And he tells the leaders to listen. Not to their own hearts, or their own minds, but to him. In chapter 3, verse 8. The angel in chapter 4 and verse 5 actually repeatedly commands the prophets to see. He wants the prophet and he wants you and I to actually consider these particularities. Zechariah isn't necessarily a lecture on what God's people are to do, but they're shown who God is and what he was willing to do in order to save them from their sins. He will rule his world. He will judge his people's enemies. He will dwell with his people and protect them. He will send his Messiah to cleanse the guilt of his people. He will purge and purify his people and separate them from their own evils. Friend, know that God's rule. God's lordship is both deep and wide. Christian, you know and are probably regularly reminded that the basis of your hope is not in yourself. And we see it far too often where people actually live anxiously in the exact opposite. Our hope is in who God is, and what he has done, and what he promises to do. Frankly, this is why we must give ourselves over to regularly study the God of the Scriptures. Even if these visions are more difficult to understand than other parts of Scripture. I imagine if you compare like, Zechariah to Romans or Philippians, and you go, I'm more of a Romans guy or Philippians guy, I can really understand that. Look at how God is revealing himself to you through this abstract vision giving actual sight to something that seems otherworldly. A response to these kind of things would be for us to actually know who God is as he reveals himself in his word. So you might ask yourself, how are you regularly studying the truth about God and his scriptures? I dare you to actually ask someone else that today. How are you studying about the depth of God according to his scriptures? See what they say. Maybe you don't want to put them on the spot and say, how would you hope? to study the depth of God and the glory of God through his own scriptures? Do you give yourself to it? Do you carefully observe God's ways with your life and in your life? Do you you study the book of your own heart? No one can study yourself like you can according to God's word. And as you read God's word, do you carefully do those things that God tells you to do and avoid those things that he, in his love, actually forbids us from doing? This kind of studiousness should actually mark us as God's people. I get so tired of people apologizing for, well, I know that you know theology doesn't make you all that great, or well, I know you can be too studious. No, God literally tells us to see him, to know him, to understand him as he makes himself visible. You are actually sinning against a holy God by ignoring how he has presented himself. Whenever you do marriage counseling, or whenever you do pre-marriage counseling, You talk about marriage in this covenant that you make with someone as this lifelong journey as seeking to understand your spouse. You know, how how they are, how God has made them, how God is sanctifying them, how God is making them holy in spite of your sin, how God is making them like his bride. Right? And you would be a terrible husband if you regularly ignored your wife, or a terrible wife if you regularly ignored your husband. And in the same way, God wants you to know him. And he does that by summoning you, not to anyone else but himself. And friend, you and I have the, the wonderful, providential love of God, of being able to see him from beginning to end in our text. I would love for our church to have a reputation of being studious about God and his word. I pray that we're not a church of just wide, wide-reaching action-packed programs, getting people to do stuff, but a church of believers who are committed to cultivating together one-to-one, group-to-work, group-to-group, class-to-class, actually thoughtfulness and concentration about God as He's revealed Himself in His Word because we actually know our own flesh. We know our own ignorance about God. We know that such cultivation will bear fruit as our hearts are appropriately humbled. So we should give ourselves over, not in regret to study, but in action to study, to study God according to his word. I was so encouraged at the beginning of the Minor Prophet series where people were actually bold and saying, I've never read that book. And you go, great, read that book. That book is about God and he's revealed himself to you. I heard last night from a friend of a person who was saying they're both reading the Psalms and actually starting to dive in Romans. Both will encourage you. It's a lot, but God is a big God who shows how he aims to save his people by knowing him. There's always a connection between someone's growth in godliness to a person's approach to God's word. You will not grow in godliness. You will not grow to be like God, gracious, merciful, wonderful. You will not grow to be Christ-like unless you know what Christ looks like. So the visions of Zechariah, don't let him be weird, but let him be a glimpse of the Lord himself where he showcases so clearly, so wonderfully, so lovingly God's sovereignty, God's goodness, God's rule, God's promises, God's perfection after he says, return to me. So may we, Crosspoint, be committed to God's praise by knowing him in such a way that we make him known to others. So as you examine, the God of the Bible knows how he graciously says about how he graciously rules over everything. The second thing that we see in the book of Zechariah is the grace of the Lord actually revealed in his word. And he does this in a very interesting way. You see this in chapter 7 and chapter 8, where God shows his grace through Zechariah the prophet by his word. Gaze at chapters 7 and 8, both of which begin with the phrase, the word of the Lord came. Historically, these two sermons, we can tell by the dating here, would have come about two years after the eight visions would have been given. Chapter seven's sermon actually looks back and explains why God exiled his people. It theologically interprets their history, exposing their disobedience. But in a deliberate contrast, chapter 8's sermon actually looks forward, describing what God will do for his people according to his own grace. So sermon 1 shows the terrible consequence of ignoring God's word, And the second sermon explains how God will reestablish his people according to his truthful word. In short, he'll give them a new beginning, a fresh start. Now, my friend, if you're here and you're not a Christian, let me assure you that God has never lied. He does not lie, and he will never lie. That means what he speaks, even to you, is absolute truth. What a wonderful thing. You You can't read the news anymore or even read a book or anything and go... Uh, It seems good, but is it it absolutely true? You know, some of you probably woke up this morning reading the headlines of one university losing, and you might go, oh, is it true? Friend, let me remind you, it is absolutely true. (laughs) But non-Christian, again, God never lies. What he speaks is truth. Therefore, you should desire to hear God's word as it's true and absolutely obey it. Can you imagine another path? Maybe you've gone hiking and you've distrusted the map. Maybe you've gone hiking and have totally known that if I start here, I will end here. Maybe you've been riding with someone where you don't have to pay attention to maps on their phone, because you know they're going to take you to the right place. Maybe you've ridden in a car with someone, and no matter how many times they've gone I'm not saying this is from experience they might find another way to get lost. But God's word is absolutely true. So friend, if you question this and wonder this, God is speaking absolute truth to you about himself and about what he wants and about how he provides it and about how good he will make it to everyone who will follow his word. All of your sin, from your favorite sins to the ones you detest, must be given up. It said they must be deserted. It means they must be left away or stopped. Those sins are lying to you, he exposes again, by telling you that they will do...